Well, good morning. I want to welcome you, especially if you're visiting here. I know how disorienting it can be to be in a, a new service, uh, especially if you listen to that story and you are just confused what is going on here. Um, uh, maybe you have been here for quite a long time and you ask the same question, what is going on? We, we've skipped a few chapters in the book of Samuel and it is good to, um, to give a little bit of orientation to what's going on. And over the last three chapters, by the time we get to our narrative, we see David in despair and on the run. He's been fleeing from Saul. And as we come to chapter 21, he is starving and tired. Saul, on the other hand, has been marshalling all of his powers in order to find and track down David and put him to death. And this fact should really start raising some questions for us. For David is clearly God's favored one. He has been known throughout history as the man after God's own heart. If we go back five chapters, uh, back in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, we see that that God has chosen David specifically to be his man. In fact, he has the priest, Samuel, anoint David as the next king. Saul, meanwhile has only shown faithlessness. And God has made it clear that he is rejected. The chapter right before David is anointed, we see the Lord completely reject Saul as king. It says there, the Lord, through the prophet Samuel, the message comes to to, uh, Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. So we have to ask, now that we're in chapter 21, why are, you, why are we still here? Why hasn't anything changed? Why is Saul still sitting on the throne wielding his incredible and merciless power? Why is David, the one so favored, undergoing such persecution, being on the run? Why won't God act? Now the question raised here isn't the, the age-old question of the problem of evil, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? The question more specifically is, does Christianity work? Does faithfulness work? Does the Bible promise too much for the people who are faithful? That's an important question. It's a question for any uh, believer who has uh, gotten past the early stages of his faith or her faith and have, have noticed that, that the faith it doesn't seem to be paying off. The more and more you try to be faithful, uh, things don't seem to be flourishing. There doesn't seem to be advancement. Things don't seem to be running smoothly. It's also an evangelistic question. Somehow you can look as an outsider to the Christian faith and and often at first glance see 
people who seem perfect and, and have their life together, and then you draw close. Perhaps you get to know some people in this congregation or, or pastoral staff, and you say, well, that can't be the case. <laughs> their life isn't rosy and sweet. It doesn't just work out perfectly. What is the point? Is faithfulness more trouble than it's worth? Now, the common answer to that, of course, is heaven. And yes, that's a wonderful answer. It is right because the ultimate answer to all of God's promises resides there. That is our treasure. That is our hope. We need to have a more robust vision of heaven. But we have to ask, is that our only hope? If that's the only answer, then that tends to leave the life here and now rather meaningless? Is the Christian life just simply here to endure, to get past for for the blessings waiting for us on the other side? Is the only source of joy in this life anticipation of the next? If we view life like that, not only will it produce lots of doubts in our own life, well, maybe, maybe heaven isn't real. Maybe God isn't listening. Maybe he doesn't love us. Or perhaps, why bother? Why not just act as a functional atheist? Maybe it'll all work out in the end. The remarkable thing about the vision of faithfulness that we have in this chapter, and even in the New Testament, is that the life we see there of people living faithfully isn't a life of resignation. It isn't a life of people who said, well, we'll just bear with it. No, what we see here is a life consumed with the the hope and the joy of the now. In particular, while going through the painful path of following God. There is real blessing, not misery. There's real purpose. And indeed, there's real glory. It's that vision I want us to look at here in probably the starkest terms as we gaze on both David and these priests who are victims of of what seemed to be the absence of God. Let's take another look. Let's look with eyes of faith. But before we do so, let's ask God to bless our reading. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we pray that you will help us to understand uh, this passage, um, long and involved and complicated. Lord, give us ability to understand it, Lord, but please also give us an ability to reflect on it as we consider our own lives and your calling in it. Bless us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know it's a long reading. There's two chapters that are in the span of this section. And even more so, there are four distinct scenes here. And briefly, just to go through all four of them, it begins with David, who has been on the run, hungry, and um, running for his life, entering the temple of God at Nob. The temple has moved from Shiloh to Nob, and there he pleads with a priest, even seemingly lying to a priest uh, to give a morsel of food. The second scene, he, in desperation, flees from there 
to, of all places, the Philistines, the, the great enemies throughout this whole book, looking for refuge. And he actually needs to pretend, as he, it goes very poorly for him, has to pretend that he's mad during that scene so that uh, they will let him go. And miraculously, he escapes. In the third scene, he is holed up in a cave, uh, which becomes uh, a refuge for him as he is uh, trying to um, hide from Saul and his men. And then that brutal, uh, ugly final scene that we heard read where uh, Saul's men, and indeed um, Doeg the Edomite, puts to death 85 unarmed priests. And their only crime being that they are associated with David. Going through all of this, we might expect David to be in anguish, feeling abandoned by God. We might anticipate him writing a psalm about it, perhaps Psalm 22. My God, my God, why am I forsaken? Or like Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Yet the striking thing about this narrative is that though he's clearly in desperation, he never once questions God's purpose or his plan. You know, he does write psalms during this period. We have two psalms in particular that give a superscription or a little uh, introduction at the head of them that identify these passages as the time that they were written. Psalm 34 and Psalm 56. But those are not psalms of lament. They are psalms of praising God, praising him for his presence and his faithfulness. Listen to some lines from Psalm 56, written while he's seized by the, by the Philistines in Gath. God is not absent to this writer. He writes, You have kept count of my wanderings, you put my tears in your bottle and, and, and recorded them in your book. This I know. God is for me. And then in Psalm 34, he has that remarkable line, taste and see that the Lord is good. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. How does David write these psalms through all the things we just heard him go through? These are not words of a man content just to wait for heaven, for God's future blessing that may come. This is a man who's experiencing God's presence and his blessing now, in the midst of his pain. How can he be so positive? You know, if you read closely here, this is not blind optimism. He understands and acknowledges this is rough. This is not masochism, self-flagellation, because somehow he feels like he's earning his stripes. He's earning God's blessing or, or love. That's what I want us to look at. How do we experience God's blessing in this type of situation? So let's take these four scenes and go a little bit deeper here, reading them with eyes of faith rather than just eyes of sight. The first one, David's encounter here with the priests. What's going on? 
David is able to talk his way into getting the bread in the temple. Abiathar, the priest, tells us that that's the only bread that they have on hand. It is holy bread. Leviticus 24 says that this bread must only be eaten on the Sabbath and must only be eaten by the priests. Now, it's common when people read this passage, it's common to just say Ahimelech, the priest, is simply making an exception. Perhaps he's telling us that the law is not really that rigid and that in desperate situations, when somebody is really going through a tough time, it's okay to just bend the rules slightly. But if that was the case, if it was the case of just sort of fudging a few rules because it was an emergency, then why does the the priest ask David if the men have kept themselves pure? If they've kept themselves from women? In the next chapter, when the priests get brought before Saul and he starts interrogating them, why don't they just say, oh, he deceived us? Or, or why, don't, why don't they just say, well, he was hungry, and so we did what was important. We gave him some food. No, instead, the priests say, this is David we're talking about. He's the most faithful among all your servants. Well, there's something more significant going on in this interaction. The priest is giving this bread for more than simple charity. And that's the point that Jesus picks up on. Something as he refers to this story. To understand all this, we have to understand what the temple was and what this bread symbolized. There were 12 loaves that sat in the holy place. And it sat there as a dramatic reminder continually that the God of the Holy of Holies, the God of heaven itself, connects with his people and provides for them. That you would see that all the time, that this bread here, symbolizing the the twelve tribes, was the providence, the provision for these people to sustain them. And now, however much the temple was a place where God's presence was, the other piece in this passage is that we should realize that the temple wasn't the only place where God resided. You know, when, when Israel went to war, they actually functioned themselves almost like a little temple. Where they were, God was. When they went to battle, God was in the midst of them. This is probably most uh, clearly seen when, in the Battle of Jericho. Some of you may remember that story. Uh, They take the Ark of the Covenant representing God's presence and they march it around the big fortress city of Jericho until the walls come tumbling down. And the whole point there is that God is in their midst. They are a holy people at this time. Now I mentioned that exception in God's presence because that is what it seems to be working out here. David is claiming not simply to be in need, he is claiming to be on a mission from God. The priest asks him, have you been kept from women? Well, that's a requirement for those who are going to holy war, fighting on God's behalf in the kingdom of God. 
you know, sometimes we, we can think about the place of God's presence and, and tie God there. But, but in the Old Testament, it was different. I mean, you know, like probably a poor example, but, but the president, when he's in the White House, that signifies the place of business where, where the, the executive office functions. But, but it moves when he's on Air Force One. It, it is the White House. When he's at Camp David, it's the White House. It doesn't just stay on Pennsylvania Avenue. It moves around with that office. And so God and his presence, his temple presence, is with his people where he promises to be here. That's the point. The story is is much more than David getting charity. It's a big affirmation that where David is, there God is. David's men actually function. David and his men, this this troop, actually function as a temple. They have become consecrated. They have become priests. And they eat this bread here in the temple. This is really the point as Jesus brings out this passage. You see, Jesus affirms throughout the Gospels that he himself is a mobile temple. Wherever Jesus is, there is the presence of God. And so as he's walking along the fields on the Sabbath and his, his disciples pick grain, the point he's making here is not lighten up. Hey, there's plenty of examples of people lightening up in the Old Testament. Not so much. His point is that where I am is the temple and the people who are with me, oh, they're priests. And the bread that's with me that I provide is holy bread that should be enjoyed and partaken of in the Sabbath, because I'm the God that provides. Now, of course, the question you're raising here is, wait a second. (laughs) Didn't David lie? Isn't that the whole point? His mission from God, or from the king, really isn't a mission from the king? Well, according to God, he is on a mission from the king because he is the king. Saul was a pretender. Now, the text doesn't condemn or condone David's action. If anything, what we can read into this action was David was intent on protecting the priests because he knew that if they were found out doing something for him instead of something for Saul, that they were going to wind up in trouble. But as a reader, we can pick up the clues exactly as Jesus did and say there's something deeper going on here. God is making a point to David that, yes, you can have this bread because you truly are. The presence of God, I am with you. And so that's our first scene. Demonstrating that in the midst of despair, in the midst of him being on the run and being persecuted, that God is not absent, he is present. He's not just sustaining him with morsels of bread, he's telling him that I am here with you savingly. Everything that represents the temple, which means God, God's love and his redemption is there in your midst. And of course, David doesn't represent us, right? In this story, David is foreshadowing great David's greater son, Jesus. He foreshadows the one who is the epitome of God with us, savingly and redemptively. But the point must not be missed. The Christian life isn't just merely waiting around for heaven. 
is not just being at the bus stop, waiting for the bus to come so that we can then get into heaven and the real joys of the Christian life. God has called us to experience him now, present in his midst. That's a point repeated throughout the New Testament, so much so that, that Paul can look at the Corinth church, one of the most backward and misunderstanding churches rife with all sorts of sin, Paul can look at that church and say to them, you are the temple of God. That's a doubly audacious claim because the temple in Jerusalem at that time was still standing. God has not left us as orphans, waiting around in what is a meaningless life. He's fulfilling what we were created for. That is the very purpose of life, to know God, to be in relationship with him. And everything that's represented in the temple is affirmed that that restoration has happened. We can now get back to what we have been created for, communing with a holy God. That's the first scene. Through the midst of the rough waters of our lives, we have access to the one. We can sing this passage as, as David sung it in Psalm 34 and 56. And then we move to this second episode, one we did not read here in the passage. But, but David, what seems like a mistake, goes off to Gath, goes off to the Philistines, carrying, of all things, Goliath's sword. And it seems like an audacious move. And it seems like a mistake because almost as soon as he arrives, the Philistine king captures him and is about to kill him before he starts to play mad. And the Philistine king says, hey, look, I've got enough mad people around here. I don't need another one, so get rid of them. What's the point? Why is this even in this story? Well, the noteworthy thing in this story is that even the Philistine king acknowledges that David is the true king of the land. He says that much. He says as he sees David come, isn't he the king of the land? Now remember, the Philistines were in the same land as the Israelites. And even further, the anointing that David has as king was a private one. But it was clear to the Philistine, as it was clear to, increasingly clear to everyone else, that it didn't matter who was on the technical throne of Israel, that David was God's true man. David was the true king. I hope the application is clear. No matter what worldly powers sit in authority and dictate and govern, Jesus Christ is the one who sits on the throne of the whole universe. He is the one reigning right now. He holds all kings and powers in the palm of his hand. The third episode comes from just a a couple of chapters. It's the, the verse 5 in chapter 22 and then verse 20. Because in both of those verses, we see that David is joined by two significant figures, the prophet of God and the priest of God. 
the two people who were supposed to hold offices attendant to God himself and aligning themselves with the king are now coming to David. But what's the point? Both of these offices bring God's word to him. The prophet has the word directly from God. The priest has the Urim and the Thummim, the, the, the discerning of God's will that we'll see play out in the next chapter, in chapter 23. And here's the great truth that David gets here. Being in despair is miserable, but being in despair without God's word, oh, that's unbearable. Even in the darkest times that David goes through here, God blesses him by giving him his word. The prophets flee from Saul. He turns his ear against, in fact, his sword against the priests. But for David, no matter what he's going through, he receives God's word. I don't know if many of you, I assume some of you, are planning to look outside at about 2 o'clock tomorrow and see the eclipse. Obviously, please take care not to do harm to your eyes. Any kids, are you going to witness the eclipse? Some of you? Yeah? You know, in ancient times, they saw that as a big deal, right? In fact, many people looked at the sky and they saw an event like an eclipse and they thought that God was speaking. And they made all sorts of conclusions about their lives and about the world. I don't recommend that for tomorrow. In fact, you know how twisted and an awful a view of God that would be if he told you to make decisions in your life by the fact that the moon passes before the sun. What a horrible way to be led by God, to guess at what does this mean, to be suspicious if maybe something evil was about. No, our God doesn't leave us with signs for us to piece together the clues. He gives us his word. He pours forth speech. He gives us his book, the Bible, that, that instructs us, that fills us. So no matter what miseries you're going through in your life, you have God's word. You know, the absence of God's word in the Old Testament was a clear sign of judgment. When God wanted to punish his people, he shut his mouth. But for us and for all times, until he comes again, we have his word. And finally, this uh, final scene, which is really the third scene in the, in the order here in chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, we see that David in the cave of Adullam. Now, he's not just hiding in this cave. It's not just about safety. But what happens there is many people begin to flock to him. They're drawn to David, and they go to this cave to meet him. Verse 2 in in chapter 22 says, And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became the commander over them, about 400 men. Think about that. That's remarkable. David in exile? David in despair? At that place, at that time, becomes a haven. They leave Saul to join David. 
David here like Jesus who says, come to me, all you are burdened and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Now from a worldly perspective, he's the last guy you want to, you want to flee to. You don't flee to the guy who's running for his life. From a worldly perspective, he seems powerless and desperate. Saul seems to be powerful and at the top of the food chain. If anybody's going to protect you, wouldn't it be Saul? And yet what we see going on here in terms of the kingdom of God is a very different picture. And it shows us this amazing contrast that we have between David and Saul. Look at Saul throughout these two chapters. The man on top. He's actually living in fear. As the chapters grow on, he becomes more and more isolated. Saul is not the one chosen. He's the one rejected. But he's sitting there as king, and he cannot see it. Instead, he feels insecure and distrustful. You know, we skipped over those chapters, but even throughout those chapters, nobody's plotting to overthrow Saul, not even David. David, throughout the whole entirety of 1 Samuel, in fact, does everything he can to protect the Lord's anointed. And yet in verse 7, all Saul can see is everybody around him plotting against him. He says, all of you, speaking to his most loyal people, all of you have conspired against me. And then he begins to summon the priests to him, the priests of the Lord, the people he's supposed to protect the most. And he begins to accuse them. It's remarkable to see their response. Their response isn't a self-defense, but rather a defense of David, who is like him. He is faithful to you. He has done no wrong. So we need to see this, this key here to viewing the Christian life, the key to the blessing and the the freedom that's there. Live for God's kingdom and you will be free from fear, whatever the circumstance, even to the point of death. Live for God's kingdom and you will be free from fear. Or, live for your own kingdom. Live for your own kingdom and no matter what height you reach, you will never feel secure. No matter how powerful you become, you will never experience freedom. In fact, if you find yourself constantly defensive, constantly insecure, that is a good sign that you're living for your own kingdom. When you feel that need to control the circumstances to protect yourself, when you feel the anxiety that things are threatening you and that you are alone to defend yourself, that is a sign that you're building the kingdom of you. Saul's efforts to maintain his throne drives him to extremes. And people are repulsed by him. He commands his loyal followers with all his his might to slay the priests of the Lord. And they flee from him, knowing the risk. The only one that that Saul is left with is the despicable Doeg the Edomite. It's a sad irony of Saul, 
the more he tries to secure his kingdom, the more he begins to lose everything. David, in contrast, can go through this whole persecution season. Goes through the run, the, the, the starvation, the, the fear. And the whole time he can actually say in Psalm 56, In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? You see, David becomes a picture, not just of, of Jesus, but of the church. Yes, that means that the church should expect to be treated exactly like David was treated. And the church should be expected to be treated just as Jesus was treated. Martin Luther puts it this way, those who teach in the office of teaching, in the church, that is, should teach with the greatest faithfulness and expect no other remuneration than to be killed by the world, trampled underfoot, and despised by their own. Teach purely and faithfully in all you do, And expect not glory, but dishonor and contempt. Not wealth, but poverty and violence, prison, death, and every danger. And yet, while that's going on, while the persecution happens to David, what is happening is the kingdom is expanding. People aren't repulsed by David. They're actually drawn to him. 400 people come to David in the midst of his suffering. Like David, the church must be the place of refuge and blessing to the marginalized. The kingdom of God will expand as people see our own sin and acknowledgement of it. As the people who undergo their own weakness, they don't turn to the world that says, run harder, run faster, do more but to the gospel of grace that promises true hope and glory. Like David, the church doesn't have to overthrow Saul to sit in the seat of power. The path that David goes to the throne does not, result in, does not come from revolution. It's not built on worldly power. And every time the church gets worldly power, we run into danger. We become corrupted. We lose sight of our hope. Like David, the church needs to be able to see injustice and violence. And not just shake our fist at it in condemnation, but rather look at our own contribution to point the finger as much to ourselves. Did you notice how David reacts in verse 20? Abiathar survives the slaughter of the 85 priests, and he runs to David. And what does David say? He doesn't say, yeah, that's Saul. He's evil and wicked. Let's go and overthrow him. What does David say? He says, I was wrong. I knew Doeg the Edomite was there. And I didn't stop him. He tells Abiathar, I have occasioned the death of your entire family. It's my fault. Now clearly Saul is guilty. Clearly Saul is to blame. But David's not interested in that. What he is interested in is his own part and his own responsibility. 
He promises this priest. He says, look, stay with me. Do not be afraid. I will protect you even with my own life. This is the picture of a church. Not self-righteous, but set free by grace. Only in grace can we be set free from the fears of our own condemnation, our fears that tell us to be defensive. Only by grace can we then love other people. That we can confess our sins to them. That we can be a breath of life. God makes no promise that David is going to survive. He makes no promise that those priests who were faithful to him would survive. The Lord does not promise that we will never die for the kingdom of God. But he does promise that the kingdom of God will never die. And that's the kingdom he calls you to be a part of. A kingdom that's far greater than the kingdom of me. Getting out of yourself and serving him. Live for him. Live for him and you'll never be enslaved. Live for yourself and you will only know slavery. That's why Saul is such a tragedy. The story of Saul reminds me of that story in The Pilgrim's Progress. You may know that great allegory of the Christian faith. But there's a scene in the second half of that book where, where Christian's wife actually then begins her pilgrimage. And she comes across the muckraker, a man who is uh, with rake in hand looking down and, and going through the dung and the straw. And she interprets it correctly, saying that what he's looking for there is worldly treasure. But his head cannot come up. Because if it would come up, it would see the hand of Jesus holding a crown right above his head, waiting for him to take it. But he won't look up. He must go through the muck, looking for worldly treasure. If he could only look up. Saul has all the promises in front of him. He's on the seat of the kingdom of Israel. The priests continually ministering to him. But he can't look up. He only sees the treasure that he's built. He only sees it slipping away by his own devices. The own irony of his own efforts to keep it for himself. It slips through his fingers. And so we must see that great truth. The promise for those who live for God put his kingdom as the kingdom they live for, that God is present here, present to bless. There is a now component to it. But why does there have to be suffering? Why does there have to be hardship? Why must David go through exile? Why can't he just go right to the throne? That is the Christian life, right? Suffering now, glory later, misery now, blessing later. But the relationship, as Sinclair Ferguson has once said, is not merely chronological. It's not merely chronological. Yes, misery first, blessing later. The relationship between suffering and glory is causal. It's causal. In the kingdom of God, glory comes only because there is a painful path. 
Jesus in the garden prays, Lord, if there's any other way, take the cup from me. But he knows that the path must lead through the cross. And imagine what that looks like to to a watching world. Jesus heading to the cross. Even his followers begin to abandon him at this point. Because it's a clear sign that God is not favoring you if you head to the cross. But what appeared as the greatest injustice, what appeared as the triumph of evil, was in fact God accomplishing glory. The only way God accomplishes glory. For sin had to be dealt with. God was not just going to overlook the sin of the world. He was not going to just wink an eye at evil. It must be judged as evil itself. It's deeply satisfying to know that that's our God. A God that is righteous and just, who stands for truth and will punish it to the very dregs. No other man could do this. No other man could take the sin and the punishment for sin on himself. It only had to be the God-man, Jesus, himself pure and blameless, to take on the curse of sin. David, likewise. David would have failed in his kingdom if it was built on worldly revolution. David would have failed in his kingdom if it was just like Saul's. Saul's whole problem was that it was a a kingdom of this world, a kingdom just like the other nations. David's glory had to come not by overthrowing Saul, but only as he emptied himself. This is the way glory comes to us. It must go through death. The Puritans had a word for this. It was called mortification. Putting to death sin in our lives. Some of you may know the the great illustration that C.S. Lewis gives in the the children's book, The the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, right? You've seen Eustace. If you know Eustace, he is one of the most miserable characters that Lewis creates, uh, a child that only cares about putting himself and his interests first. He comes in that story across a great treasure in a cave, and putting his interests above others, he Uh, plots on how he can keep this treasure all to himself like a greedy dragon. And so as he falls asleep and, and awakens upon this treasure, he finds himself to be that dragon. He's become this hideous monster. And it makes him weep. And so he he begins plucking out the scales. And of course the word that that he's given is that will not do. There will be no change if he tries to do this gently. He has to take his massive claws and dig into his flesh and do things that are agonizing to him as he peels away the dragon of him until he gets back to being a little boy. The point is not that we must suffer to earn glory. The point is that death will come for all who are attaching themselves to the kingdom of God. You are being born again, but there's also a death that happens to you. It doesn't come by our own doing, but it will come to all, to all who have this new life. We will go through the painful mortification. There is a death involved 
whenever God begins to work on you. And that death can be slow, it can be agonizing, but the glory it produces is the glory of the gospel. That's suffering that you can rejoice in because it's suffering that sees this glory being born now in you through Christ. And it's a glory the world can see. A world that that turns away when the church is in power and seated in glory of its own making. But when a church is seen as those following after Christ, loving at its own sacrifice, a church then gets to, uh, a world gets to see and hear and experience Christ as we're caught up in his uh, sacrificial love. So what does this change? How does this change the way we live? What would it look like not simply to just wait for heaven, but to live for the kingdom of God now? How would it change you? Well, the first thing it would do is, I think, change our prayers. What if your prayers were kingdom prayers? I continually find myself praying for silly things. I pray for safe travel. I pray for health. I pray for a smooth day. I pray that all my plans would be accomplished and successful. Do you know how miserable I'd be if God answered all of those the way I wanted them to be? I would be so arrogant you wouldn't be able to put up with me. Not this. Okay, so there's probably a joke in there about putting up with me anyhow. But I catch myself doing this all the time. How would it change if my motivation in life wasn't for God to just make my day go smoothly, to make my kingdom expand and grow. But if my whole entirety of my prayers were devoted to making his kingdom grow in and through me, yes, it's not bad to pray for health. It's not bad to avoid danger. But am I doing it so that I can build my own kingdom? This needs to change the way I face my day. What happens when my main goal in life is to avoid things that are painful? When I just look out for myself? When I avoid the difficult conversation? When I avoid admitting my own faults? When I avoid the perhaps dangerous conversation of confronting somebody else in their sin? You know, with all the ugliness we're seeing in the news, with all the despicable experiences we're seeing around the country of, of people who are um, racist and demonstrating uh, an ignorance and a hate that is awful, the church must and should stand out and call that sin. But what really disturbs me is that, that we could allow that sin to go unchecked here because it's a difficult conversation. That we could avoid uh, conflict with people that we know. All because it's easier to just post something on Facebook and feel self-righteous about it. Or perhaps we can avoid very easily looking at our own sin. It's too difficult to confront my own darkness. What am I doing to contribute to the problem? Have I really asked myself that? Have I the grace-based courage to see the guilt in my own hand 
because of what Christ has accomplished, be free to actually address things that are painful. When it's the kingdom of me, what we'll see is a much less painful path, yes. But what we're doing is just settling for raking in the mud. And we're avoiding the crown above our heads. But when the kingdom of God is my goal, then I can sacrifice prestige and family and security. When I live for something bigger than myself, I find that what I see is God being glorified. And that glory doesn't reside just in God because God's whole purpose in himself being glorified winds up embracing and including his people. We, all who connect ourselves to Christ, get caught up in that very glory. David sees it. David sees it. So in in the desperation of his run, he can still remain faithful and praise him. Saul does not see it. To him, the glorious advancement of the gospel is hidden. Will you see it? Will you walk by faith? Will you live beyond yourself? Follow it. Yes, the path may be painful, but the glory is for you. Let's pray.